I don't think homelessness can be solved. I know that homelessness can be solved. This is our cause. It's our calling. Let's all rise to the challenge and make California stand up as an exemplar of what true courage and compassion can achieve. Let's all get to work. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. It's the midpoint in Gavin Newsom's term as governor, and the pandemic has thrown a wrench into a lot of his grand plans for California. Coming up, we're going to look at where Newsom has succeeded and where he's fallen short. Plus, who's getting COVID vaccines right now? Is it going to those who need it the most? Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. And I'm Nicole Nixon. Elizabeth, do you know anybody who's gotten the COVID vaccine yet? You know, I've been thinking about that, and I, I don't actually know anyone who has actually gotten the vaccine. I do know educators in my family are waiting to see when they can, you know, get in line for it. Um, and people talking about how to get it, all these Facebook groups that I'm in, lots of people scheming and plotting about where to wait or who to call. But I haven't really, you know, seen a lot of success yet. Well, the thing that sticks out to me right now is the crazy different timelines that people have for this. Like Dr. Anthony Fauci is saying that he thinks most people in the United States will be able to get the vaccine by like April. But then here in California, we're hearing that it might take until May or June just to vaccinate everybody who's 65 years and older. So I'm just like, who's right here? <laughs> yeah, I, even, I haven't even given it much thought in terms of when it'll be like our turn for people like us, because it is just seems so far down the road. But it is it's like the Wild West of vaccinations, right? Everyone's trying to get it. And I don't know if you heard the story out of Oregon this week where there were drivers stranded by a snowstorm on a highway and then health care workers sort of showed up there with the vaccine and were vaccinating stranded motorists. I don't know that I would trust like someone knocking on my window and offering me a shot in the middle of a snowstorm on a highway. Yeah, that sounds so sketchy. I don't know if I would do that either. But at the same time, if you have an opportunity to get the vaccine, why not take it? And meanwhile, here in California, our regional state home orders ended this week. And I think that that really confused a lot of people because, A, it happened so suddenly. And B, ICUs are still full in a lot of places like in Southern California where you are. Yeah, I got a lot of text messages and calls that day from friends and family saying, like, what does this mean? You know, yesterday we couldn't go out. ICUs are full. Is this a big deal or not? And trying to explain that while the stay-at-home order is gone, we still are in the purple tier, which is the strictest tier. But there's a lot of confusion over all of that. Right. Well, all of these decisions and restrictions are coming from Gavin Newsom's administration. And as we mentioned a minute ago, this month marks the midpoint in Newsom's term as governor. A few of my CAP Radio colleagues and I wanted to spend some time exploring how Newsom has done in his first two years. We covered four categories, kind of a report card, but without the letter grades, lucky for Newsom. And we're also keeping in mind that he's been saddled with the COVID response for nearly an entire year now. First up, we're going to hear from Cap Radio State Government reporter Scott Rod. He took a look at Newsom wanting to improve the government's ability to connect services to its citizens through technology, which it turns out is really challenging with a state government as massive as ours is. Government innovation in tech has been a key piece of Governor Gavin Newsom's political career, you know, going back to his days in San Francisco. Uh, in 2013, he wrote a book called Citizenville, 
how to take the town square digital and reinvent government. And the whole idea behind this book is governments need to be more tech savvy. Governments need to be more open with their data. And as a result, people will become more engaged in the civic process. He tried new things when he was uh, the mayor of San Francisco. However, coming into state government, uh, he's had more challenges. And a big part of that is he inherited these systems, the tech that state government has had for decades. One of the biggest failings, one of probably the most prominent and one that's really dogged him certainly in the last nine months is with EDD the Employment Development Department, which handles unemployment claims for the state. Throughout the pandemic, you've had this wave of Californians applying for unemployment insurance. And the system is exactly the type of system that Newsom has advocated for changing. I mean, it runs on a computer coding system that's 60 years old. So you have this old antiquated system that's now being tested under this crush of applications. And you've had backlogs that have approached or exceeded a million people. You have had rampant fraud. Newsom did inherit this system, but systems only change if there is a concerted effort to try to overhaul it. And he appointed a strike team that said, we need to basically scrap this whole system and start from scratch. The problem is we're in the midst still of this pandemic. Now that's on the failure side. On the success side, the pandemic also set the stage for one of Newsom's successes, which is getting data out to the public and to researchers on testing, on people testing positive, on breaking it down throughout the state by county, breaking down hospitalizations and ICU numbers. It's been very open to the public. It's been clear for folks. There is essentially a one-stop shop for people to get onto the state's website to find where it is, to figure it out. So that's been a more successful area for, for Newsom. Now, Scott also mentions that early in his tenure, the governor announced a new Office of Digital Innovation with tens of millions of dollars allocated to its budget. But apparently, they're still waiting to get this set up, and it's not fully staffed yet. And in fact, I went onto their site just the other day, and at the top of it, it said, this website for the Office of Digital Innovation is still a work in progress. So some of this information up here may be outdated. And that illustrates what's happening right now, which is there is this push to get California, which is the hub of you know Silicon Valley and tech innovation worldwide, to get the state government up to speed you know, into the 21st century. Despite those efforts, there are still stumbling blocks that they're hitting. Okay, so another area where Newsom has hit stumbling blocks is when it comes to environmental and climate policies. We had Ezra David Romero on the podcast last time to talk a little bit about this. But this week, we asked him to dig more into Newsom's record on environmental promises over the past two years. Early on in Governor Newsom's role, he talked about climate change, talked about wildfire, But about a year into all this, coronavirus happened, and then 2020 was a huge wildfire year. So a lot of that work was thwarted because a lot of money had to go to wildfires and to coronavirus. The budget got a lot smaller. But then there's this other huge factor that was going on the entire time. Uh, President Trump was in office, and he was repealing, rolling back environmental policies and rules, and California under Newsom and his leadership were putting lawsuit after lawsuit out against them. So he was in this place of sort of defense for the past two years um, against the federal government, trying to protect the environmental rules we have here. Um, And then even when the president 
at the time said California, you can't make your own standards around air quality. Uh, Governor Newsom went directly to work with automakers, like like sideswiping the president. So there was some ingenuity in these past years, and it may seem like he hasn't been doing a lot, but he actually has in terms of just holding ground on environmental policy in California. Uh, the other big thing he's worked on is around electric vehicles, zero emission vehicles. In September, he put out an executive order saying he wants all new trucks and cars to be sold as zero emissions by 2035. The transportation sector in the state of California represents over 50% of all of the emissions, 41% directly uh, related to vehicles, 11% uh, related to the production of uh, petroleum fuels. As a consequence, when we are looking to achieve our audacious goals to get to 100% uh, uh, carbon-free economy by 2045. Uh, we can't get there unless we accelerate our efforts in the transportation sector. That idea sort of put California in the spotlight again globally. Other countries are now imitating that same target. And then just recently, after reflecting on all these big wildfires that happened, he wants to put about a billion dollars towards wildfire prevention. Um, that's in his state budget. And he's also like working with the federal government on an agreement to clean up forests. But all the experts I talked with said, that's a lot of money, but it's also not a lot of money for like the size and scale of fires we have. And that billion dollars, there's already something like more than a dozen agencies that are vying for that money. Um, and so it's sort of this place that he's in now where everyone's talking about Biden administration that's valuing equity and climate change and all these things. He's in a place where he can actually take a stand environmentally and move from this place of defense to offense. So it'll be interesting to see if the governor makes any bigger moves in this space now that he has a huge ally in the White House with Joe Biden. I know that over the summer, Newsom had to drop out of this speaking slot at the Democratic National Convention, but he sent a video dispatch from a wildfire zone, and he basically begged the country to take climate change seriously. Our last reporter we're going to hear from is CAP Radio's Chris Nichols. Chris took a look at Newsom's follow-through on homelessness, which continues to be one of the top issues in the state. Newsom made some really big promises on homelessness, uh, both during his campaign for governor and also during his State of the State address last year before the pandemic hit. And he devoted that speech almost entirely to homelessness. So essentially his promise was to make this issue a top priority for his administration and for state government in general. And that's a change from past governors who really saw this as a local issue that was best left to mayors and county supervisors. And notably, Newsom set the bar really high in his state of the state address. I don't think homelessness can be solved. I know that homelessness can be solved. It is our cause, it's our calling. Let's all rise to the challenge and make California stand up as an exemplar of what true courage and compassion can achieve. Let's all get to work. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. I think it's important to remember the scale of this problem. There are an estimated 150,000 Californians who are homeless. Um, several advocates said one, one thing that he needs to do is to create a permanent funding source. Um, a lot of the money for these programs, it's just temporary. It runs out at the end of the budget. 
and there's no consistency. These programs are not sustained. So they say that's important both for the housing side of this solution and the supportive services for drug and alcohol treatment for mental health programs. Now, early in the pandemic, Newsom created what's called Project Room Key. It was an emergency housing program where the state gave money to cities and counties to go out and lease motel rooms. And the goal was to make sure that COVID-19 did not spread through homeless camps and shelters. And when we look back at last year, more than 20,000 people across California were helped by Project Room Key. That's according to the governor. And advocates say that that was a really big success. So a lot of what the governor has done so far is temporary and it responded to COVID-19. But, you know, he also introduced a longer term project called Project Home Key that provides money again to local governments to buy motel spaces to offer a more permanent solution. And throughout the state that has helped purchase about 6,000 units for people who are homeless. And I think the question is how many people will transition from those temporary motel spaces to this longer term option? And also how will Newsom address the tens of thousands of homeless people who did not qualify for either program? Those are unanswered questions and I think they'll define his success or failure on this issue the rest of his term. So, Nicole, I know you said you all didn't give Newsom letter grades, but what grade would you give him at this midpoint in his term? Well, I am not in the business of giving letter grades to elected officials, but I can tell you that as recently as a month or two ago, about six in 10 Californians said they approved as Newsom's performance as governor. And that is nothing to sneeze at. But meanwhile, there's this effort to get him recalled. And this one actually stands a decent chance of getting on the ballot. We've been hearing about this and recall efforts happen all the time, but they don't usually go anywhere. So what makes this one different? I think there are three things. First, a few months back, a judge extended the deadline for recall organizers to gather signatures because of the pandemic. So that gives them valuable time to get organized. Second is money. You know, these recall campaigns are expensive, and these organizers have gotten some big checks from big Newsom opponents. And third is that the pandemic actually gave a lot of groups a common enemy in Newsom. You know, business groups, people in the restaurant industry in particular, have been very upset about stay-at-home orders. I mean, I talked to a hairstylist last week for one of my stories who told me that she got involved with the recall effort because of the pandemic restrictions. Coming up, we explore who is getting the vaccine and concerns about whether it's getting to those who need it the most equitably in California. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from Cap Radio and CalMatters. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. And I'm Nicole Nixon. Earlier, we mentioned the state opening up again. You know, people are still a little confused and frustrated about the end of the regional stay-at-home orders. We're basically a year into the pandemic now, Nicole, and it's clearly impacted some communities more than others. Latino and Black residents, low-income workers, 
Joining us today to help break down the situation and explain how the state might be able to actually keep equity as a focus is Cal Matters contributing writer Barbara Fader Ostrov, who's been reporting on health policy for more than 15 years. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to chat with you because beginning in mid-February, which is coming up in just a few weeks, more essential workers will be eligible for vaccination under these new standards announced on Tuesday. What are those and why are some people worried about this? So the priorities that were uh, just released basically focus on the most important categories of essential workers as defined by a working group of experts that the state asked to kind of create some guidelines. So that involves teachers and childcare workers. So kids can go back to preschool and school, people who work in the food industry, including grocery workers and farm workers, and first responders like firefighters and police. These groups are still on track to get the vaccine in the next priority group, along with people 65 and older. But after that, it's going to be all about age. And that leaves behind a lot of people who may be younger, but have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. That group includes prisoners, the homeless, people with chronic health conditions or disabilities. And it also includes important essential workers, including you know, nuclear plant workers and water plant workers. These groups are not happy and advocates for them are not happy. One thing the governor and others at the state level have been talking about is the importance of equity in vaccine distribution. Of course, equity is something we've been talking about a lot in the last year with Black Lives Matter and the new presidential administration. But explain why equity is especially important with the vaccination rollout. Just as we have seen massive social inequities revealed during the pandemic, really laid bare. Uh, We are also seeing that happen in vaccine distribution. You know, there's an argument um, in public health that we should just work to get vaccines into arms and not really worry about what color they are or what other um, demographics they have. And you know, an answer to that is that people of color and low-income Californians have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So we know that Latinos, for example, they make up about 40% of California's population, but their death rate for COVID is 20% higher than statewide. The people who uh, whose median income is under 40,000, they are 39% more likely to be infected with COVID. So these groups really are, um, you know, groups that need to be targeted by vaccine for protection. Right. And, and how do you do that besides doing it through that lens of race and ethnicity or those categories that you mentioned in terms of frontline workers? Given who has been impacted by COVID, what is happening with the rollout? Is it equitable? Do we even know in California what those numbers look like? We don't really know statewide. And that's because unlike some other states, California does not make a demographic breakdown of its vaccine data or vaccination data publicly available. Uh, The state says it's going to do so, but it hasn't done so yet. 
Um, that said, we know that there are national disparities starting to emerge where we see communities of color, particularly African-Americans, uh, getting the vaccine at lower rates, even when they are in the eligible categories. Uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation recently came out with a study suggesting this uh, nationally for states that do report that demographic data. Los Angeles, uh, the, the county public health department has come out saying that they are very concerned about um, particularly healthcare workers who are African-American and Latino in South Los Angeles, not getting the vaccine at the same rates as other uh, healthcare workers. And so they are opening six new vaccination centers in that part of the city uh, and county. That said, um, you know, the state had launched this extensive decision making process with a group of experts called the working group and a group of uh, community stakeholders and advocates called the community vaccine advisory group. And they've been meeting for months, trying to figure out the best, quickest, safest and most equitable way to distribute vaccines across California. And what they came up with this this incredibly complex plan that balanced frontline workers with people with chronic health conditions, with age, uh, and uh, tried to assure equity in all of these categories. But what you ended up with was three phases with tier 1A and tier 1B and tier 1C. And it was extremely hard for, uh, you know, vaccinators and you know, healthcare providers to understand, let alone the general public. And it was also going to be slow to roll out because how do you prove that you are a certain type of worker? Health providers like Sutter Health or Kaiser Permanente, they have good electronic medical record systems, but they don't keep data on who's, you know, um, a water plant worker or who works in a cafeteria. They don't, they don't keep that kind of occupational data in their medical records. So there were a lot of concerns among insurers and healthcare providers, let alone the counties that were tasked with doling out the vaccine, how they were going to do this logistically on the ground. So how does the state ensure equity with these new rules that you're describing, you know, to favor age, how do they still sort of police that? Because, you know, there's been a lot of stories about and questions, too, like how do you beat the line? How do you get to the vaccine as quickly as possible? Is it actually possible for there to be equity on this? I think a lot of experts believe that there definitely are ways to get to a place of better equity. So in our current system based on age, that system privileges people with cars who can go to drive-in clinics, people with computers or smartphones and the you know kind of technical knowledge to access some pretty difficult to navigate websites, um, people with the language skills to do that. Um, it privileges all those people uh, who tend to be more affluent and more white. Um, but that said, with the new Biden administration, there are discussions about max vaccination clinics, but also clinics at, say, elementary schools and bus stops or fire stations. Every community has a fire station and every community has an elementary school. 
and to focus on what they call trusted partners, people who uh, say a, a farm worker community that uh, speaks, you know, indigenous languages, there are people and groups that they trust and to work within those groups. Do you think this is something they should have been prepared for before the vaccines rolled out? Is this something that the state didn't pay attention to? I think they were paying attention to it. But you have to remember the California, you know, state public health department and pretty much all the state public health departments have been working day and night uh, with not enough staff and not enough money. Federal money for vaccine distribution didn't come to states until the end of December, and it's still trickling in. For example, they could buy freezers for the super cold storage they needed for the Pfizer vaccine, but they couldn't necessarily hire vaccinators or stand up mass vaccination clinics until the last minute. However, the equity planning has been going on for some time. It just turned out to be too slow and complicated of a process uh, to withstand the pressures to vaccinate as many people as possible. Well, this is definitely something we'll want to check back on. Thank you, Barbara Fader-Ostrov, contributing writer for Cal Matters, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Nicole, I'm curious to watch how the state addresses these questions, because if history is any indicator, then the inequity will continue. And hopefully they'll have some success in some of these areas. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, state officials say that they recognize these inequities and that they try to address them. But like meantime, this week, I've seen a lot of anger from people with disabilities and chronic health conditions who feel like once again, they are being overlooked and pushed aside. And for people like this, this could be a life or death situation if they get sick before they're able to get the vaccine. That's right. And that's on a lot of people's minds. So I think we're going to be talking about COVID again next week. Oh, you think it'll still be a thing next week? (laughs) I know it'll be a thing. And we're going to talk about what's going on with the California Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or as we all know it, Cal OSHA. Its mission is to protect California's workforce, but it's facing significant criticism over the lack of enforcement of workside COVID rules. We'll hear from a CalMatters reporter about where the agency is failing in its commitment to protect employees throughout the state. And that's California State of Mind for this week. Thanks for joining us. And Elizabeth, I hope you take care and stay safe. And we'll see you next week. Thank you, Nicole. And I hope you have a great week, too. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Nick Miller and Tess Vigland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Dave Lesher is Cal Matters editor and Joe Barr is Cap Radio's chief of content. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Hit that subscribe button. It's free and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week.